In Genesis chapter 14, we have an incredible story. A story of a kidnapping, a story of a redeemer, and it is a story ultimately that involves the king of righteousness. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 1, we read this. And it happened in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, uh, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Aren't you glad that it's clarified that Bela is also Zoar? We got a bunch of kings here. We got a bunch of, we got nine kings. And it's four versus five. They're, they're going to battle. And so, what in the world's going on? Well, we don't know a lot. We don't know much at all about some of these guys or some of these little kingdoms. But here's what we do know. These are essentially the kings of modern Iraq and Kuwait in that area. Okay, that, that area. And, and they're going to go to battle. They're going to go to war against some kings in Jordan and Israel around the Jordan River. Okay, four kings versus five. And when we talk about these kingdoms, we're not talking about, you know, the United States of America. We're not talking about Russia. We're not talking about kingdoms like you and I think of kingdoms or empires or nations. These kingdoms were city-states. And and when we're talking about city-states, we're not talking about a city the size of Lubbock. We're talking about a city, if it was really, really big, a third of the size of shallow water. Okay? So you take about, there's about 3,000 people in shallow water that live there. About a third of that would be a really, really big city, and it would have a king. And so, just so you understand, this is the size of these, these battles and these wars going on. And so, there, you know, there might be a, a, a few hundred people, if you include women and children, maybe a thousand, I don't know. And then in verse 3 and 4, we read this. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Now, for 12 years, they had served Kedorlaomer, but the 13th year, they rebelled, all right? So you have all these kings. There's one king. He's more powerful than the others, and so they all serve this guy. They pay taxes to this guy, tributes to this guy, and they serve under him for about a dozen years, and after he Year 12 or 13, they say, ah, that's enough. It's time to rebel. That's, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. We need a rebellion about every 13 years or so. And just to throw off the government and uh, move forward a different way. I say that half joking, half not. Uh, verses 5 and 6. So in the 14th year, Kedarlaomer and the kings that were with him came and struck the Rephaim. Who's that? Big people, tall people. Okay, The Rephaim and Ashtaroth. Karnaim, and the Zuzim, who's that? More big people. And Ham, and the Emim, who's that? Is that Eminem? No, it's Emim, these big people, not rappers. And Shavah, Karathayim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. In other words, they traveled hundreds of miles. They traveled about as far as Abram did in his entire journey going up the Tigris and Euphrates River, and back down into modern-day Israel to fight this war. 
Then in verse 7, then they turn back. Okay, so they go way down into the valley. And then they turn back, and they're going to go back up north. And they're just a whooping and a hollering. They're, they're, they're kicking tail everywhere they can. They came back to El Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they struck all the country of the Amalekites and all, also the Amorites who were living in Hazazon, Tamar, verses 8 and 9. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arranged themselves for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Verse 10. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, bitumen pits. You don't want to fall in one of these. You fall on one of these, at the very best, you're going to get stuck. This tar, this bitumen, was used essentially as a plaster on homes and buildings. You do not want to get stuck in this. And then the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. They're losing the battle. And they fell into them. But those who remained behind fled to the hill country. Then, the victors, they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. The kings and their armies are stuck in the tar pits. Let's go raid the villages. Let's take everything we can find. The women, the children, the cows, everything. Let's take it all. That's what they did. And here we go. They also took... Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and they departed. Now he was living in Sodom. Lot was that nephew that keeps showing up for Thanksgiving. Lot was that guy who just was always, he was always around. He was family. But what had happened? Abram the uncle and Lot, the nephew, they had to go separate ways. Just like the journey song. They had to go separate ways. Because there wasn't enough land. There wasn't enough goodies for all of their sheep and all of their servants and everything. And they, their guys were all get, they were getting into uh, fights and arguments. And so Abram said, go wherever you like. Your choice. Lot said, I'm going to go to the east. I'm going to go to the valley. And he ended up living in Sodom. And so now Lot has been kidnapped. So Abram comes to the rescue. Verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, wait a second. This is the first time that Abram's called a Hebrew. Where did this come from? It just appears. If you're reading this for the first time, you don't know what a Hebrew is, but that apparently Abram's one. He came and he told Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram, he was dwelling by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Anir, and these were in a covenant with Abram. Abram has a covenant with his neighbors. 
Now, do you remember what God promised Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3? This is God speaking. God said to Abram, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Listen to this part. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here are these neighbors Abram's living with, and they're on friendly terms. And God is blessing them, because God always keeps his word. Verse 14, so Abram heard that his relative, Lot, had been taken captive. And he, had, he, had, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318 in number. And they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abram's pushing 80 years old. And I'll tell you, there's nothing stronger than old man strength. But Abram is pushing 80 years old. And he's not going to put up with this. This is family. And so he gets his trained men. And look at the size of his household. These are just the trained men. 318. And they... Give chase. I mean, this is like an old Western. They give chase against the bad guys that have kidnapped his nephew Lot. And so they go way north to Dan. Dan is way up in the hills. Dan is way up to the north. Verse 15, and he divided his men against them by night. He and his servants and struck them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. You're talking modern-day Syria. Abram is serious about this. He is pursuing these guys with his men. And so they go further to the north and to the east uh, past Damascus. And he struck down the kings from the east. Verse 16. And he brought back all the possessions. And he also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions. And also the women and the people. Do you see what Abram did? Abram redeemed his kin. Abram became what is known as a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is, is a man who rescues his own family from destruction. Much later in the history, in the book of Ruth... Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer to Ruth and to Naomi. And then Boaz and Ruth, they become ancestors to Jesus the Messiah. And who is Jesus the Messiah? He's our kinsman redeemer. Jesus is the one who has rescued us from the destruction of our own sin. And he is our kin. He is, through faith, our brother. He is the only begotten Son of God. And we have been adopted into the family of God. What an incredible gift we have to have Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. And that's how Abram is functioning. It's a foreshadowing of the future. And so Abram brought back all the king's possessions. He got all the stuff. He brought, back all of, he brought back Lot and all of his possessions. 
And then Abram brought back all the women, all the children, all of the people. And then we have this appearance of the king of righteousness. Verses 17 and 18. Then after he came back from striking down Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the Most High God. Two men came out to greet Abram the victor. One of them got himself out of the tar pit. The king of Sodom got himself out. king of Sodom has nothing at this point. He has nothing. It's all been taken away. So he goes to the victor who has taken captive the captives. He goes, the king of Sodom goes to Abram, and as we're going to see in a minute, the king of Sodom is ready to play, let's make a deal. How can I get my power back? Melchizedek also comes out to greet him. Now, Melchizedek, this is his first time on the scene. Okay, he wasn't one of these kings at war. Melchizedek, he just shows up, and he's the king of a new place, a different place. He's the king of Salem. And he comes out for a very different purpose. Whereas the king of, Lot, the king of Sodom, I should say, came out to play Let's Make a Deal Melchizedek came out to greet Abram, to bless Abram. Very different attitudes. Who is this guy, Melchizedek? We're told he's the king of Salem. The word Salem here is essentially the word shalom. He's the king of peace. The word shalom means peace. And his name, the name Melchizedek, it's a combination name. The, the name Malki means king, and then the word Tzedek means righteousness. His name means king of righteousness. Here the king of righteousness is the king of peace. Who is this guy, Melchizedek? Well, to answer this question, we have to look elsewhere in Scripture. Where else is he mentioned? Melchizedek is not mentioned anywhere else in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He's not mentioned in the history books of the Old Testament. He's not mentioned in the wisdom books of the Old Testament. He's not mentioned in the prophets of the Old Testament. He's not mentioned, as far as we know, by Jesus in the Gospels. He's not mentioned by Paul in all of the Bible the only other place where he is mentioned is in the book of Hebrews. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5 so we can learn about this very important figure and have some insight into our passage today. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. Here's what we read. And the author of Hebrews, by the way, is talking about Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews wants his readers to know this, that Christ is elevated higher 
than any others. Christ is higher than the angels, and Christ's priesthood is greater than any other kind of priesthood that we find that Israel had going on by the time of Moses. So in Hebrews chapter 5, here's what we read. In this way, Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but he said to him, but he, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He in the days of his flesh, talking about Melchizedek, offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, speaking of Christ, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is our high priest, but not only our high priest according to some Levitical priesthood at the time of Moses. Jesus Christ is our high priest according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then in the next chapter, chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, listen to what we read. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he, God, could, not, could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed, and one which enters within the veil where a forerunner has entered for us, Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Way back in Genesis chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, here's what the author of Hebrews is referring to. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. 
Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Why is this important? Back to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 2. To whom also Abram, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all, which was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which, mean, which is king of peace. And here's Melchizedek, verse 3. Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy. Think about this. Think about all the genealogy in the book of Genesis. We're constantly told of all the godly people's genealogy. You have the genealogy of Adam. You have the genealogy uh, of Seth. You have, the, you have all these genealogies, the genealogy of Noah, and now the genealogy of Terah, who produced a Abram. You have all these genealogies. The, the family line is very important. Melchizedek, no record of a father, no record of a mother, no record of any genealogy whatsoever. Verse 3 of chapter 7 in Hebrews, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. All the time in the book of Genesis, it tells us, and this guy was born at the so-and-so year of his father, and then he died, and he was this old. And he died, and he was this old. He died, and he was this old. Constantly throughout the book of Genesis. Not so with Melchizedek. No record of his birth, no record of his death having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he, Melchizedek, remains a priest continually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received now the Le Levitical priesthood, that comes hundreds of years later. And it's a lesser priesthood. It was a covenant made with the people of, of Moses' day. And it was a lesser priesthood. Verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi, the, the priests were the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, they have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their from their brothers, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that's Melchizedek, had collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Here's the argument. The argument is that hundreds of years after Abram, here's Levi. He's a priest. His sons are priests. They receive tithes from the people for their own sustenance and to do God's work. And so they, as priests, are greater than the people because the people pay tithes to someone greater than them. But Levi, According to the author of Hebrews, Levi was still in the loins of his father, Abraham, who was hundreds of years before.
the page. Levi, in the loins of his father Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. When Abraham, or he's known as Abram in Genesis 14, when Abram paid tithes, so did Levi, hundreds of years later, pay tithes. The greatest in this hierarchy is Melchizedek. Abram is less, and Levi is less than that. This is the argument being made. Verse 9, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? In other words, hey, if Levi's priesthood could offer up perfection, if it could fix all this sin, then there would be no need for Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. But why did Jesus have to come? Why did Jesus come? Because the Levitical priesthood was lacking. It did not pay for our sins. We needed a priest who was greater than Levi's priesthood. We needed a priest who was like Melchizedek. A priest without beginning or end. A priest who lives forever. That is your high priest. It is Jesus. A high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What an incredible logical argument the author of Hebrews is making. Back to the story in Genesis 14. We're not done with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom wants to make a deal. He's like Monty Hall. Let's just make a deal, all right? What's behind door number three? And the king of Sodom said to Abram, here's the here's king of Sodom. He has nothing. He has nothing. And he has the audacity to make a request. He says, give the people to me, but take the possessions for yourself. He's in no position to bargain, but he tries. What does Abram say to him to finish out this chapter? Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to Yahweh, God most high. Abram uses the same term that he just heard Melchizedek use for the first time. God most high. And Abram says, I have raised my hand to Yahweh, God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth, Melchizedek just said that. That I, Abram, will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours so that you would not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten. Can't give that back to you. And I will take the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. I can't speak for them. 
They can take what they want. But after they're done taking what they want for rescuing all of your people and all of your stuff, I don't want a thing from you. I'm not going to let you say, I made Abram rich. This was the passage. When we came out of COVID, or still dealing with COVID, and you remember the government said, we got free money for everybody. They, they got a habit of saying that. They say it a lot, don't they? Uh, we got free money for everybody. PPP loans. Payroll protection plan loans. Remember that? All that came out. And whoever wants it can have it. Businesses, charities, even churches can apply to get money because we, we shut down the economy. We told everyone to stay home. So everyone can apply to get money. And by the way, if you jump through these little hoops, uh, we'll just give you the money. It will be a grant. It won't be a loan. And there are a lot of churches that decided, hey, let's go ahead and do this. Maybe this is God giving us money. I was torn as to what to do. I like free money as much as anyone. Right? But free money is never free, is it? And I was searching the scriptures for what to do. I came across this passage where Abram told the world, I'm not taking a dime from you because otherwise you will say, I made Abram rich. And I presented that to the church. And it seemed good to all of us to not apply for a PPP loan so that later down the road, some atheist, the government, whoever else might accuse us, well, the only reason you're there is because my taxes paid for it. No. We decided we're going to let the Lord provide for us. And if that meant that we go through hard times because none of us knew what was going to happen with all that mess, did we? If that meant we were going to go through hard times, if that meant that things were going to get so bad, I'd have to go get a real job. So be it. But we're going to honor the Lord. We're going to honor the Lord. The best we can. And we mess up a lot of things, probably. But I'm convinced of this. God's Word always has the answer. It always has the answer. Whether the issue is whether to take free money from the government, whether the issue is how to deal with sexual sin in the Southern Baptist Convention or in a church, whatever else the issue might be, God's Word always has the answer. We just have to be willing to look. But the moment, the moment that we lose the fear of God, and we discard His Word for the so-called wisdom of the world, the moment you decide to make a deal with Sodom instead of rely on God's provision, that's the moment you begin to take the path toward destruction. You have a choice today. You can be the kind of Christian who says, okay, God, whatever you say, I'll consider it. You can be the kind of Christian who tries to obey God the world's way. 
You can be the kind of Christian who tries to mix God's wisdom with the wisdom of the world, thinking you're going to get the best of both and really end up with the worst of both. Or you can be the kind of Christian who says, whatever God's word says, I'll do it. So let's find out. What does God's word say? I'm ready to obey. Listen, if you're not a member of this church and you want to be a part of a church that strives to obey God, as crooked as broken vessels as we are, we strive to obey God. If you want to be part of a church that asks the question, what does God's word say? Then I invite you to be a part of ours. But if today you're listening to this message and you've just sort of been checking out this whole idea of following Christ, you're not sure yet whether you're in. You're not sure whether you're really going to devote yourself, devote your life to being a follower of Christ. I want you to know where you can begin. You need to recognize who Jesus is and what he did. Who is he? He's the eternal son of God. Become flesh. What did he do? He died on a cross. To pay for our sins, he rose from the grave to make us right before God. Recognize who Jesus is and and what he did for us. And you need to repent. That means that you turn. You turn from doing your own thing to following after God. Sometimes it means that some people doing their own thing, they're actually trying to run from God. Instead, you run to him and you surrender. Give up. And you say, I'm tired of running from you, God. I surrender. You win. Here I am. And then receive Jesus by trusting Him alone. Trusting what Jesus did on the cross. It's not enough just to know some theological things that may have happened a long time ago. You personally have to be willing to say, Jesus, I trust in You to save me. And if you do that, if that's your decision, Jesus will. He will save you. The Spirit of God will come dwell within you, and you will have peace. You will have peace. That doesn't mean everything's going to go right in your life, but you'll have peace. Carrie, forgive me for a minute. Carrie is an inspiration to me. Carrie Dameron is an inspiration to me. She has gone through a terrible about 10 days. Water pipes in her apartment burst, flooded everything, messed, just everything just about was messed up. She has not wavered in her faith. She's here today looking to serve God and be with God's people. When you come to faith in Christ, not everything's going to go right. Okay? The pipes are going to burst. The bills are going to keep coming in. But you will have the peace of God within you. And you might even be an inspiration to others.